Well, as our uh, other two campuses and our other two venues join us for our time of the Word, let me just make a, a comment. What an incredibly rich time of worship we've had this morning, right? That was just an, an incredible time. And uh, especially that, that last song. I, I don't always look at you guys when I'm worshiping because I'm in the front row here, but when I'm getting ready to come up here uh, to give the word, I, I get to see you. And uh, that was really moving. Some of you are very much expressing yourself in worship, and that always does my heart really good as your pastor to see that. In fact, there were even some of you uh, up there in the, the season ticket holder section that was doing that. And uh, way to go, season ticket holders. You guys are, are great. And so... I, uh, I uh, want to mention that we're about halfway through this series that we're in right now. If you've been with us in this series, uh, you know it's, it's pretty watershed type of teaching that we're doing here. I, I mean, I stick very close to God's Word, so it's not about me, it's about Him. I pray every week as I prepare uh, these messages that this would be His Word to His people. That this isn't, you know, Jamie's opinion on things, but we stick real close to His Word. And these eight things that we're looking at that... Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, promises can keep us from falling and keep us focused on Christ and have a vibrant, strong faith. These are eight really profound things. And uh, this week, as we look at self-control, we're halfway through the list. So if you've hung with us so far in this series, way to go. If you're just starting out, uh, we obviously have the messages online, and then you can join us, too, for the second half. And before I pray and we dive into today's topic, I do want to mention one thing about what's going to happen after the service today. As was mentioned earlier here and hopefully at Mountain Valley Cactus Venue and Chapel, uh, we're going to have our monthly elder fund offering, but this is a very different one. Uh, we're looking to complete our Compelled by Grace vision that we started four years ago. We're just about done. The campuses are done. We've launched a new campus in Mountain Valley. We have uh, done a lot of work with, um, with helping other churches. And, and we had a missions focus to build a ministry center smack dab in the middle of Israel, in the West Bank, in a predominantly Muslim area to uh, do outreach in the middle of the Middle East there. And we partnered with the Palestinian Bible Society, and we bought the land. If you guys remember this, a few years back, you guys bought the land. We donated the money for the land, and now uh, the building's ready to go up. And it's about $200,000 U.S. to build this ministry center. It'll be the first wing of it. And the Palestinian Bible Society has already raised 100000 or has that committed. And if we as Scottsdale Bible Church can give an additional 100000 then that thing, that thing goes up. And we'll keep you posted and show you pictures, and, and we're off to the races. So that's usually about what we raise in this once-a-year elder fund offering. And so if that helps put it in perspective for some of you, we're going to take up the offering at the end of the service today. So, you know, usually when I say amen, I've never seen some of you move so fast in how you get out of church. So today, when I say amen... You're going to notice on the clock, you got about seven minutes left. That's by design. That means you're not supposed to leave. We're going to still worship with one last song. Take up this offering. And again, it's not a double dip. This all goes, every penny of it. If we raise up more than 100000 extra room uh, in the building. It's all going to go uh, to building that ministry center. So uh, I hope you give generously to that. So I don't say stuff like that very often, but this is such a worthy cause, and I think God will really empower it, and, uh, and, and I hope we are generous. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, uh, you know that, boy, one of my favorite times of worship, I love all of it, but Lord, so much of my favorite time is when we get to open your book. 
And God, we get to plumb the depths, as we're going to see today, just one word, one word from your scripture, and plumb the depths on what your Holy Spirit meant by inspiring this word. So God, as we uh, put our thinking caps on now, as we soften our hearts and open up our lives to you, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the other day, I was uh, with my trainer. I never thought I'd say that back in Cleveland. I was with my personal trainer, and I was uh, telling this man, who I've been friends with now for almost a decade, he's a close brother, we're, we're very tight, I was telling him that I'm not looking forward to speaking on self-control at Scottsdale Bible Church. And I said, the reason is, is I've been seeing you for nine years, and I've gained 25 pounds in the nine years that I've seen you. And I have told you that I'm no poster child for your personal training ministry. And, 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 and that, you know, I said, it's just kind of embarrassing. It's obvious that I'm not doing really well in that area. His answer kind of surprised me. He said, well, Jamie, it is true that you don't listen to me when it comes to what to eat. And it is true that you don't exercise as often as you should. He said, but you're too hard on yourself. Uh, when it comes to being a pastor, a preacher, a Christian, a husband, a father, a friend, I've seen you in all those environments, you're one of the most self-controlled, disciplined men that I know. And I thought to myself, at least I've got him fooled. <laughs> I think my friend actually has a point. I, I, I have been wrestling with this, this topic before us today, this idea of self-control for really a few months now, ever since I knew we were going to be speaking on it. But, but my friend got me thinking about something that I think is true about you and I and self-control. And I'm going to throw it on the wall and let's see if it sticks. And it's this, that if truth be known, each of us here today, each of us at our other campuses and venues and watching online are probably self-controlled in some areas of our lives. Can you own that with me? That if I follow Followed you around for 24 hours, I would find some area of your life, maybe many, in which you did, uh, show a lot of self-discipline or self-control in. But then in that same 24-hour period, I would probably also notice certain areas where you are lacking self-control. Can you all own that with me today? I, I, some of you won't, and I don't know any other way to say it other than denial. I, I just don't know any other way to say it. Because the reality is, is that I think my trainer is right. There are certain areas that Jamie Rasmussen is obviously needing self-control in, but then there's other areas where over 30 years of being a Christian and 30 years of being a pastor in churches that he's demonstrated or honed some self-control in his life. And I think that this is just true of all of us. I have friends who are rigid and militaristic in their diet and physical workouts. I mean, they look great, but as I've gotten to know them, their marketplace friends or their spouses would tell me that they lack patience with those around them. So really self-controlled in this area, but lacking self-control over here. I have friends who have remained faithful to their spouse for decades. No adultery, no porn, no major lust, but they spend money like a drunken sailor. I go to their houses, and they're just, they're just convinced materialists in their lives. So again, self-controlled in this area, but not very self-controlled in this area. But how about this one? I have friends who have developed strong spiritual discipline habits. They go to church regularly. They have daily devotions. They engage in weekly Bible study. They serve like crazy. They tithe 10% on the gross. But then they admit to me in a private moment a secret, long-standing battle with a particular besetting sin. 
Again, disciplined in these areas of life, but then when we shine a light on this area of our lives, we lack self-control. I want you to think of all the things, and I don't mean to depress you, but this should help put this into perspective. I want you to think of all the things that you and I are told we need to master in life as a Christian. I mean, this overwhelmed me this week. I, I just started thinking of all the things I've been told over 35 years that I need to get a hold of as a Christian. Food, spending, sex, patience, kindness, the use of my language, anger, driving habits, addictions, a humble attitude, and I'm just ramping up. I, I mean, there's so many things that I have been told, and most of them are provable from the Bible, that I need to develop self-control around. And here's my simple point. The chances of you and I today having mastered all of these areas is statistically unlikely. And so the reality is, and this is my main point, my, my introductory point, we're going to get to the main point here in a minute, is that I think we're all in the same boat when it comes to self-control. I think that we all need more self-control, and I think, to be fair, that there's some areas in our lives where we have developed self-control, maybe some more than others, but let's face it, sanctification, this side of heaven, is an ever-increasing uphill journey, and nothing reveals this more than the topic before us, this is that of self-control. And yet there it is, smack dab in the middle of a list of things that we are trying to build into our souls in this series, things that will help create a fall-proof faith. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 6. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with, let's all say it together, self-control. There it is, at number four on the list of things that we're to build into our souls and our lives in order to have a stable walk with God. So with the obvious understanding that I am preaching way over my head today and even beyond my experience, let me blow your mind with the single most powerful thing the Bible tells us to do with this building block of self-control, and it's almost going to seem like an oxymoron, like I'm doing double speak here, but I'm not. I'm going to show you in the remaining time we have today that this is indeed what the Bible says we're to do with self-control, and it's this, and that is that the secret to self-control is God control. Or to put it a little bit of a different way, what you and I need to do with self-control is learn over time to turn it into or hand it over to what we're going to call God control. Now, the best way to understand why we're saying this and how we get to this point is for you and I to wrestle right now with a two and a half thousand year old dilemma that was definitely raging in Jesus's day and that I would submit to you is still raging today. And the dilemma is this, and that is that when you and I use the phrase self-control or the hyphenated word self-control, do we mean the self-controlling the self or do we mean the self-controlled by a non-self-force? This was a huge distinction or issue going on in Jesus' day. I'll show you this in a minute. And I think it's going on today. Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, now and then will throw out the phrase self-control. I need more self-discipline. I need more self-control. They might use that phrase. And the question I want you to wrestle with is that when they use it, 
or when Oprah uses it, or when Dr. Phil uses it, or when a sitcom uses it, or when you use it, are we using it the same way? What do we really mean by self-control? Because the phrase itself could mean the self-controlling the self, a self-contained entity, or it could mean the self-controlled, because it's self-control, by a non-self or outside, if you will, force. And again, what you need to know is that this dilemma was going on when Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included this word self-control as the fourth building block of a fall-proof faith here in 2 Peter 1.6. I want to explain to you this dilemma even further here because I think it'll be very enlightening to you and you'll catch on as we go along. This word, self-control, in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in uh, is the Greek word enkratia, enkratia. And I just transliterated it there from the Greek. And get this, this word that goes back 500 years before the time of Jesus, before the time of the New Testament, all the way deep into the Greek era, literally means to have mastery over something, to have dominion over something, or to have lordship over something. So it kind of means the same thing. It means that you have an entity in your life that you want to gain total control, mastery, dominion, lordship over. And watch this. It was almost always used in Jesus' day in light of the self. And so this word really became known as self-control because it meant to achieve complete control over your passions, over your body, over your emotions, even over your will. And what you need to know is that for the 500 years before the day of Jesus, the Greek culture absolutely overdosed on this word or concept of enkratia. I mean, it was a household word. It was a coffee shop word. It was a marketplace word. It was a dinner table word. It was a word talked about all the time in the academy or the universities back then. It was used literally thousands of times in the writings of the various Greek philosophers, and it became a core concept for right living, the self-mastering the self. It was the closest thing to self-help that the Greeks invented at that time. It was the Dr. Phil word of their generation, really of generations, because it lasted for 500 years, even before the time of the New Testament. Uh, just to show you the power of this, look at, let, let's trace, this will not bore you, I'm gonna do this in three minutes. Let's just trace uh, 500 years of Greek history in three minutes, even less. Uh, Socrates, who's the founder of Greek philosophy and thought, lived in the fifth century BC, called enkratia, or self-control, a cardinal virtue. And, and then his student, Plato, that all of you have heard of, said this, the first and best victory is to conquer the self, enkratia. And then his student, Aristotle, devoted an entire section of his book on ethics to one concept. Can you guess what it is? Enkratia, this idea of, of self-control. Uh, and then it's the Stoics that exist for about 200 years, kind of a conglomeration of a lot of Greek philosophy, defined enkratia this way, a man under no control but who, who freely controls all. 
And then Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher, but very influenced by the Greeks, saw enkratia or self-control as superiority to every desire and even expressed it in the form of restraint. So self-control involves not doing certain things. And what you simply need to see, gang, is that the common denominator of this 500 years of Greek culture was that the mind should exercise control over the emotions and the will at all times. And for 500 years, this was the prevailing view of self-help in Greek and eventually Roman culture, mind over matter, mind over all. And I just need you to pause for a second because this is very important for us to understand this word and this concept for our lives today. I want you to imagine something becoming culturally entrenched for 500 years and how people thought and how people saw things and the perspective that they had. Imagine how that would make you feel or think about things in the culture that you lived in. How many of you ever heard uh, of evolution? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of evolution. Almost every one of us. Well, you guys know the origin of evolution. It was Darwin's theory uh, that, that, that he developed in about 1850. So evolution is less than 170 years old today. And yet, how ingrained is it in the culture that you and I live in and how we think about things? Or how about the Enlightenment? Many of you might not be familiar with the Enlightenment, but it's about 250 to 350 years old. But the Enlightenment was known as the Age of Reason. We elevated reason above everything else, even, sadly, God's revelation. They did that very intentionally during the Enlightenment. But think about the world that you live in now and how reason is everything. Well, that's because it's been existing now for about 350 years in Western culture. Or how about the Reformation? Let's speak positively. Some of you that are more Calvinistic or Reformed in your thinking, and all of us are Protestant here today, this is the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation this year. 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that started the whole ball rolling with the Reformation. And think how that has now changed the way you and I think about God. Or how about closer to home, abortion? or transgender issues in our culture today. Just a few decades old in our American culture, and yet think how much that has captivated the thoughts of our culture. I just need you to see that when something gets ingrained in a culture, a certain way of thinking, it begins to take over. And enkratia, the self-controlling the self, was deeply entrenched. In the Greco-Roman world, it was the way everybody thought. It's what everybody was shooting for. Now, with that understanding, let's compare this now to how the Old Testament and the New Testament would use this word. Because you would think that was such a common word that could mean the self-controlling the self or the self-controlled by a non-self force, that this would be a word that they would just jump all over and utilize in the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, there's not one occurrence of this word in the entire Old Testament. Not one. 39 books written over at least a 1,000-year period of time, during half of which was the Greek era, and not once do the Old Testament writers, inspired by God, mention the term enkratia. And then we get to the New Testament, 
And in all of the Gospels and in the entire ministry of Jesus, you guessed it, not one mention of enkratia. Not one utterance by Jesus of self-control. And then it appears a mere seven times in six verses in the epistles. And it's interesting, it appears in four lists in the epistles. I mean, we're going through a list right now. And in Acts 24, verse 25, Paul is before Felix giving a defense for his faith. And he says, hey, Felix, you know, Christianity is about righteousness and judgment and, say the word with me, self-control. He kind of just throws that in there. And then in Galatians 5, verse 23, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it mentions as one of them, self-control. And then in 2 Peter 1, 6, the fall-proof faith, it mentions self-control. And then in Titus 1, verse 8, it's listing the character traits needed to be an elder, and you guessed it, one of them is self-control. So in four different lists, they take this word enkratia and throw it in as, hey, this is part of what the Christian life is about. And then the word appears only two other times in the book of 1 Corinthians in two concrete examples. And you're going to love one of the examples, and some of you are going to get very, very nervous right now with the other examples. Let me do the nervous one first. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul the Apostle is addressing a, a deep-seated problem in their culture back then. I know it's going to be hard for you guys to picture this, but people were actually sleeping together before they got married. I know, I know. I mean, it's hard to picture that people would actually do that, uh, but back then they were doing that. And, and Paul was addressing that issue, and he says, hey, if you're engaged to somebody and you can't find self-control then just make an honest woman out of her and get married. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. And then it appears again in two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about the Olympics. And he says, hey, people who go into the Olympics, you know, engage in a lot of self-control, so we should too as well as, as Christians. So at best, here's what I need you to see, gang. There is a scarcity of this word in the Bible, Right? I mean, it appears thousands of times in Greek culture, a household word for 500 years at length, and it appears not at all in the Old Testament. Jesus completely ignores the word, and it appears a mere seven times in six verses, mainly in lists in the New Testament. And the question that I need you to wrestle with right now is why? I mean, why would such a common word in Greek culture not appear hardly at all in the Bible? Why did the writers of the Bible all but ignore this concept in the Old Testament while the Greeks were going nuts with it and then reference it only a few times in the New? And the answer is simple when you think about it. It's going to go back to what we talked about 10 minutes ago, and that is that the New Testament writers were very leery of this idea of the self controlling the self. Don't get me wrong. The reason I think that they did eventually use this word is because they did agree with their culture around them that they wanted to get to the same place, right? I mean, what Christian would not agree that part of our sanctification is this idea of the self being controlled, the self under control, the flesh not running the day when it comes to our behavior and our lives. So they wanted to get to the same place as Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, the Stoics, uh, even the Essenes and all the other groups that were existing at that time, but to assume 
that it could come via something as simple as mind over body, they knew that this wasn't ever going to work. They knew that that, that 2,000 years later, you and I would be sitting here today going, yep, I got self-control going on over here, but I got none of it over here. Because when your whole life is simply, well, I think I'm going to do it, I think I'm going to do it, I think I'm going to do it, I'm just going to engage in in more mind over body, that works sometimes, but it doesn't work at all consistently in our lives, at least for other things. You see, the biblical writers knew that human beings are far too fallen, far too messed up in their flesh, to think that without God, just trying in our own strength, we could somehow gain complete mastery over the self. And so I like how the famous theological dictionary of the New Testament sums it up. It it traces all the hundreds of years of history of this word. And listen to what, this is the, the last paragraph in the lengthy article I read this week about this word. It says it's significant. The biblical religion finds so little place for the concept of enkratia, which in the Hellenistic and Greek world is so essentially ethical. The reason for this is that biblical man regarded his life as determined and directed by the command of God. There was thus no place for the self-mastery which had a place in autonomous ethics in the Greek world. Simply put, the biblical writers, inspired by God himself, knew that the secret to self-control had to be God-control. Otherwise, we have no use for the term. Otherwise, we're just like the world around us. We might as well just put the Bible aside and watch more Oprah and Dr. Phil. We might as well just put the Bible aside and just start reading Aristotle and Socrates again. Because without uh, the Bible, we would have no idea what God is really after in self-control. And and we're going to move on here in a minute. But I got to tell you, what really put the nail on the coffin of this understanding for me this week is that when you actually look closer at the actual uses of enkratia that do occur in the New Testament, you see that this is exactly what they were trying to get at. This idea of the self being controlled by a non-self entity, namely God himself. I'll show you this very quickly here because I think this is relevant. I said to you earlier that this word occurs mainly in lists. And so the first occurrence is in Acts 24, verse 25. Paul is before Felix. He's defending the faith. He's saying it's about righteousness, self-control, judgment, listing these things. But in Acts 24, verse 24, the passage right before that, it says this little disclaimer. It says, as he, Paul, spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So the whole premise of what Paul was talking about was a faith, a trust, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it was only from this that he listed things like righteousness, self-control, and the escape from judgment. And then I'm not done. Look at the uh, next passage here in Galatians 5.23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is in verse 22. And then in verse 23, it lists... Self-control is one of them. If they were following Greek thought, they would have said, but the fruit of the self is. (laughs) And then they would have listed these things. But as I taught you guys last year when we did the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Jamie, not the fruit of Ed, not the fruit of Mark, not the fruit of Laura. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So self-control has to come from 
the Spirit. And then we're not done yet. Look at this next passage. This is a passage that made some of you squirm earlier. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. You know, don't sleep together before you get married because obviously that's not what God's will is for us. And Paul is saying that, that if you don't have self-control to do that, then just get married and, and make it right before God. It's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, just two verses before this, Paul the apostle, if you guys think I'm bold, he basically says, look, I got self-control in this area. I'm not doing what you guys are doing. And then he says this, I I got it because it's a gift from God to me. So he calls his own self-control a gift from God. Isn't that interesting? And then lastly, the passage before us even here today, 2 Peter 1, 6, where it says that we need to have self-control as part of our fall-proof faith. Remember verse 5, it says, make every effort to add to your, say it with me, faith. I I think you're starting to get the picture. Consistently, the Bible gives us a precursor to the call to self-control. And the precursor might be faith, fruit, a gift, but all of them are saying the same thing. It's all tying it back to God. And so that's why I say maybe now it's more complete for you that really the goal of self-control, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as God sees it, is to learn to turn self-control into God-control. The secret to self-control is God-control. And so maybe now Galatians 2.20, one of the more popular passages in the Bible, now becomes even more robust for you. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some people call this the exchanged life. It's simply the idea that you and I are not our own as followers of Jesus, but we're not autonomous Greeks. (laughs) We're not islands of Americans who just do their own thing. No, we are people who have been bought with a price by Jesus, our Savior. And don't ever forget this. It's his work in us that allows us to engage in anything that he calls us to, not the least of which is this idea of self-control. And so with all of this said, with this clear understanding of self-control really being about God control. Uh, the question I want to answer in the about 13 minutes we have left before our elder fund offering is simply this. How do we actually do this? I, I know how some of you are thinking. You're, you're thinking up to this point, you know, Jamie, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, even longer than you, even longer than you've been alive. And, and, and I appreciate the passion and motivation behind turning self-control into God control, but I've known that for a very, very long time. And I still struggle with it. I still have areas in my life in which I just have very little self-control. So so how do we actually turn self-control into God-control? And though I've taught you the answer before, and I'll teach it to you again, as long as you have me being your pastor, it does bear repeating time and time again. And so here it is. Here's your take-home point today. And that is, I'm telling you, if you want To gain self-control, you need to learn to walk as a dead man. You need to learn to walk as a dead man. It was nine years ago this year, in my first or second year here at Scottsdale Bible, it was in 08, that I I preached a sermon series out of Romans chapter 6. 
I think it was one of the most poignant things I've ever taught only because of the nature of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Because Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about how to change. After Paul establishes justification in the first five chapters, he now says, okay, how are you actually going to become different people <laughs> now that you know what it means to be justified before him through faith alone in Christ? And in chapter 6, I mean, it's one of those powerful chapters in the Bible, uh, Paul the Apostle is talking about how you and I can actually become different people, how we can change, how we can get over besetting sins, how, how we can start to live lives set apart to him, how we can have self-control. And, and Paul says this in Romans 6, verses 8 and 11. He says, now if we have died with Christ, and by the way, anybody who is a believer in Jesus has died with him because you identify with his death on a cross for your sins. And the Bible says in that way you are dead with him. It says if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, right? So if you're a Christian here today and you've identified with Christ's death, then here's the good news. If you were to fall over dead today, your friends and family hopefully would miss you but you would be in glory with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Why? Because if you died with him, you're going to live with him. That's the hope and promise we have. Even if your last thought is not a very flowery one, even if your last moment is one where you're, you're in one of those big oops and not walking with him at that moment, here's the power of eternal security, of the assurance of our salvation. If you were in Jesus, you are going to be his for all of eternity. And nothing can now change that. If you have died with him, we believe that we'll also live with him. Now, look at what Paul then does with the same concept three verses later in verse 11. You gotta love this. He says, so now in the moment today, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what is he doing here? I, I, I mean, again, if, if you think about it, you go, well, he already said I'm dead to sin. I mean, again, if I died today, even without a flowery thought, I'm going to go be with him for all of eternity. You just said that, Jamie. So why would verse 11 say, now consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus? We call it the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positionally, as God sees you, if you are his, you are his. And he sees you as white as snow. All your sins are forgiven. He sees you as righteous in his sight, and you are his. But on a practical level, he knows you're still fallen. He knows you still need to change. But just like your positional righteousness has come through the death of Christ, he says, if you want to change, consider yourselves dead to sin, because you are, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't know if some of you remember, I gave you a very graphic illustration nine years ago when I did this sermon. Do you guys remember what it was about? I held up a box of, of little crackers. Do anybody remember what that, that box was? Were you guys here? Cheez-Its. Some of you were here. I got to do this sermon again because it really did preach well. I, I held up a box of Cheez-Its and, and I told you guys at that time, because weight has always been my issue, I told you guys at that time that, that these little crackers are, are some of the most sinful things ever made by our contemporary culture. Because they're, just, they're high fat, they're made of pure cheese, and they taste so incredibly good. And they come in big ones and small ones and white cheddar, and I'm told all this, and, and they come in white cheddar and, and others. And, and, and my dilemma is I can eat a box of those things in like one half of a football game. And, and, and it's, just, it's just terrible little crackers. And I shared with you, in light of those Cheez-Its and the fact that I need to avoid them, five words that can change your life. Do you remember those five words? 
I, I, I said, here are the five words that can change your life based on Romans 6. I am dead to that. Five words that you can speak every moment of every day into every situation in your life that promise to give you victory, not because it's self-help stuff. It's based on you claiming by faith what God has said about you. I am dead to that. And I shared with you, and it's still true today, that when I go through the grocery store and I do the weekly shopping for my wife and I now, and when I was younger, I did it for my wife and the kids, uh, I, I, I would go down that, that aisle where all the Cheez-Its are. And again, they have so many varieties nowadays. And, 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 I'd, and I'd look at all those Cheez-Its, and I practiced it for years. I'd look, I'd, literally, I'd, I'd be found muttering to myself. I'd be looking at those boxes. You know what I'd be saying? I am dead to that. And I'd go right by them. I'd go right by them. And, and I'm telling you, it really does work. I, I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but see, here's the problem. The reality is we really don't claim by faith the fact that we are dead to sin. We don't. But every time I do, I tend to have victory and self-control. See, the times that I don't have self-control, and they, they are often, are, are, are when I'm existing and living in the flesh, trying to have mind over matter, mind over will, just like the Greeks did and like we're taught today on our self-help shows and all of that. And again, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But almost every time, in fact, in fact it should be every time, but literally 98% of the time, when I dare to kick my faith in, when I dare to take God at his word, when I dare to look sin in the face and with all the faith that Jesus has given me, say, I am dead to that. I tend to have victory. I tend to have an immense amount of self-control. In our time remaining, we got just five minutes left. I want to do kind of a rapid fire thing of sharing with you five things that over the years have helped me foster a I am dead to that mentality and alive to God mentality. Things that have helped me to have more self-control. And again, I'm, I'm going to do these kind of fast in staccato fashion. Uh, but before I give them to you, because um, it's our closing, I want to um, ask you to do one thing with me right now. I, I want you to get in your mind the one thing that you need self-control in right now in your life. No one else needs to know, just between you and God. But just get something in your mind right now. I, I hate to say it, 35 years into this, it's still food for me. My wife and I talked about that just recently. I, I mean, it's really, it's really kind of pathetic. I, I'll be in the grocery store now, and once in a while I'll see somebody from the church there, and they'll look in my cart because they remember the I am dead to that thing. And, <laughs> and it, it really does happen this way. They'll look at my cart, and, and you know, I'm not dumb enough. I, I mail order my Cheez-Its, and so they're not in the... <laughs> no, I, I don't, I don't. I, I, I literally, I don't buy Cheez-Its. I've been accountable for that. I am dead to those. But they'll look at my cart and they won't see Cheez-Its and then they'll say, what's that? And I'll go, well, those are Hot Pockets. Why? You know, and they'll say, well, shouldn't you be dead to those? And I go, yeah, well, shouldn't you walk with God? You know, but I mean, <laughs> you want to start getting accountable, let's talk. Because I, ha I have areas in my life where I'm very self-controlled. But, but it is still food for me. I, I, I buy things I shouldn't, and I, I, again, I, it's not right. So I, I'm thinking food right now as I walk you through these five things. Here's the first one. Um, don't feed unhealthy habits. Uh, St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, nailed it. He said, habits, if not resisted, soon become necessity. Uh, repetition is a very dangerous thing to our lives. Do you all understand that? And part of the reason some of us just don't have any self-control is because, man, we're just constantly repeating. We've just given up. We've lost hope. 
And the reality is if you can just start to say tomorrow, just a couple of times, I'm not going to feed this unhealthy habit, just to try to turn the tide a little bit, it can help tremendously. It's very biblical. Galatians 6, 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit reaps eternal life. The idea of sowing, you guys know what that means, just casting some seed. So you just cast a few seed in good places, and over time it's going to grow up to be a good plant. But if you sow to negative things, it won't. Uh, second thing here is uh, avoid pathways of temptation. I see my buddy Denny here. One of the things that they will tell you in recovery movements is that uh, one of the greatest ways you can not fall is just don't put yourself in the pathway of temptation. If you're an alcoholic, don't go into a bar. <laughs> if you're a guy that likes to eat a lot, don't fill your fridge with things that are, are going to cause you to stumble. So it's really biblical. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Now, here it is. But with temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. You see, there's plenty of times in my daily life where I'm trying to walk as a dead man, and, and, and I get to a fork in the road. Can any of you relate? And I know that this path is going to lead to more temptation than this path. And God is doing what? He's pulling a 1 Corinthians 10, 13 on me. He's providing a way of escape. But he's saying, it ain't on this path. It's on this path. The pathetic thing is, is that sometimes I go down this path. And the amazing grace about it is, is that God goes with me. The whole time he's saying, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. But he does go with me because that's how much he loves me and he promises to always journey with me. But he would have rather me take this path because I can choose to avoid pathways of temptation. Again, what are you thinking about that you need self-control in right now? What paths are you taking? Third thing is uh, practice discipline. Practice discipline. One of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, Steve Allman and I ran into this a few years ago in an article we were reading together, um, is by John Ortberg. Habits eat willpower for breakfast. Do you know what he's getting at here? It, same thing as Augustine. He, he's saying that there's a difference between habits and willpower. Willpower is just you waking up every day and trying to be Greek. It's you waking up and saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I am not going to eat that same way today. I'm not going to lust today. I'm not going to get angry today too late. I, I, I'm not going to do this today. I, I, I'm just going to prove that I can do it, even though you develop no habit around it at all. And the reality is, is that that's not going to work very well for you because you don't have the willpower. hate to pop your bubble but your flesh is too strong. You're too fallen. You're too sinful. You've not proven self-control there. But as you develop habits in your life, godly good habits, Orberg's right, habits eat willpower for breakfast. And again, it's 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown or wreath. We do it for an imperishable one. So the idea is we, we do the same thing as the world does. It's just that we practice discipline in the right areas. And maybe that will help you. I love this next one, number four. And that is to distinguish in your life between feelings and consent. What do I mean by this? I actually got this from Fenelon, an old-time spiritual writer. And Fenelon says this. I thought this was so profound. He says, we are not masters of our own feeling." But we are, by God's grace, masters of our consent. In other words, what he's saying is, is that you can make a choice 
even when you don't feel like making it. And I love that. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Well, what does God say to Israel? Moses is speaking, but he's speaking the very words of God. And he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. Can you imagine if some of the Israelites at that time said, yeah, but you know what, God? I just don't feel like choosing life. I just don't feel like, I mean, he would say, really? I make a distinction between feelings and consent because by God's grace, by his spirit living in us, we can consent to whatever we choose to consent to. And then as you're doing these, number five, and with this you're done, keep your focus on Jesus. You know, one of the things that keeps me in the ring of self-control is that when I feel like I have none, when I feel like feelings are running all over me, when I've gone down the wrong path, when I haven't developed healthy habits, all the other things we're talking about, I just look to Jesus, and what do I say to him? Help. <laughs> Help me, brother Jesus. Help me, Lord, Savior Jesus. Uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And as you consider him, as you trust in him, as you lean upon him, he will sustain you. You can do this, church. You can get more self-control. If all proof faith depends on it, I'm in the battle with you. I, this week, resolve to have more self-control as I move on. I'm inspired to because I want to turn self-control into God control, and I'm availing myself more and more to him. I hope you're with me in that journey. I'm going to pray right now. When I'm done praying, don't leave. We still have some things going on right now. God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, God, that uh, you've put us all in the same boat in, in a very real sense for needing more and more self-control in our lives. And so, God, I pray that as we each give thought to our own lives here today and the areas that we need to develop more control in, that, God, you would cause us to realize it's really about your control over our lives. And I pray, God, that as we do that, as we trust you more, as we engage more in the things that we know that will give you more control, that God, you would then turn that into victory and victory into hope and hope in giving glory to you. And I pray this in Christ's name and we say together as a church, amen.